These are select readings from John chapter 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. After this, Jesus, knowing all was now finished, said, To fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Thank you, Pastor Ben and Pastor Luke, Pastor Tyler, Miss Jessica. Thank you for helping us tonight to focus our attention on the cross of Jesus. Uh, tonight, and then again on Sunday, uh, church family, we get the privilege of joining with thousands upon thousands of other followers of Jesus around the world in making that trip, that journey once again with Jesus to the cross and then with his disciples to the tomb, and then that Easter morning to the empty tomb. As is our bent, uh, because we know the whole story, uh, I think we are quick to want to hurry on to Easter morning. Uh, Hope, joy, resurrection, and indeed, we'll we'll go there Easter morning, but it is really good for us uh, to pause on Good Friday evening uh, and to join the disciples at the foot of the cross, to join them in 
those moments of, of, of loss and grief and to think together with them, what is this? What is this about? And what does this mean? And how can it be? And to spend these, these moments together tonight and throughout the day tomorrow, uh, wondering with those early disciples what has happened. As you know, uh, if you have joined us uh, for our live streams, you know that this uh, Holy Week, that our theme has been Rejoice Greatly, taken from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, the prophecy of Zechariah, the one named, of course, the Lord remembers, uh, where we have read this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Rejoice, uh, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And we visited that text last Sunday, and tonight, again, we think about the theme of rejoicing greatly. Tonight, specifically, thinking on the theme, God's justice is satisfied. And to help us explore that, I would love for us to turn to the book of Romans, chapter 3. And I'd like to spend a few minutes with us tonight in verses 9 to 26. That's a lengthier text. We'll read all of that here in a moment or two, but the focus of our attention will be verses 21 to 26. But again, tonight, having heard God's word already, we want to come again and hear uh, this text. So Romans now, just a word about its context. Uh, Paul is explaining the gospel in the book of Romans, and he begins uh, with, with what really is an exhausting look at the sinfulness of the human heart, mine and yours. It, it, it's laborious, it's difficult to, 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 to read and to, to go again, paragraph upon paragraph, because he, he deals with one group and then another and then another. It, it's an indictment of the human race. And so as we come to chapter 3, uh, our text proper, um, Paul is drawing a conclusion. It's like, it's like closing arguments at a trial uh, after such an exhausting bit of evidence. Uh, this is his conclusion as I read God's word and you look with me. Romans chapter 3, starting verse 9. Paul says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be, may be stopped, every mouth may be closed, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. 
For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation, that is, a satisfaction by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he may be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now that earlier part, that indictment, verses 9 through 20, is, a, is the door slamming, it's the coffin closing, it's, the, it's, it's Paul's final summation, uh, the end of which everyone who hears that conclusion should say, and I'm guilty too. That's Paul's intent, is to show the true guilt of the human race. Now, verses 21 to 26, this paragraph, uh, I, I hope is familiar to you, it should be, Different Bible scholars down through the years have looked at this paragraph and said, this is it. Every child of God should know this paragraph. In fact, a couple writers from history, Donald Gray Barnhouse for one, said this about this little paragraph. He wrote, I am convinced today after these many years of Bible study that these verses are the most important in the Bible. Can you imagine? Romans chapter 3, this little paragraph. And again, Dr. Leon Morris, another Bible expositor, says this. This paragraph may be possibly the most important paragraph ever written. Imagine, those are strong words. Now, clearly, the Apostle Paul, in explaining the gospel, begins with our sinfulness. Before he proposes or before he presents the solution that God has provided he lays out this big case for our sinfulness. And, you know, today in, in our current world and maybe in your life and in mine, there is a tendency in our own hearts, I, I think every one of us, to, to minimize, to overlook, uh, to treat sin casually, ours especially. The sin of others against us, that's a big deal. My own sin against others, my own sin against God, well, surely it was just a mistake. And this is a text, the book of Romans, and this paragraph, I think, are correctives to us, a casual view of sin. One writer says this about our understanding of sin. He says, our sin is not small because it is not against a small sovereign. The seriousness of an insult rises with the dignity of the one insulted. I was reading that um, little statement, and I recalled a number of years ago now uh, in what was an international incident between the Queen of England and Michelle Obama uh, at the time, 
the wife of, of, of our president. And there was, a, there was a moment of greeting when Michelle Obama transgressed the royal protocol and she, she reached for or embraced the queen. I forget what it was. But there was, a, there was a breach of protocol that caused an international incident. You can look it up. The queen was offended. Uh, in fact, she is quoted famously as having said, sternly, of the royalty, we do not press flesh. See, the, the, the royalty was insulted. But as we think about sin, this, this other writer saying, our sin is not small because it's not against a small sovereign. So that is, until we understand the greatness of God and his worthiness, his worthwhileness, his glory and holiness, we will continue to tend to see uh, sin as smaller. Now, there's another uh, common error we, we embrace about sin And here I would like to step into some areas that you who think theologically will want to wrap your minds around and uh, step with me into uh, uh, the place where there's a lot of discussion, all right? Uh, Not only do we sometimes treat our sin too casually, but but think about this. We, We tend to view ourselves as the main point of the cross of Jesus, what I mean by that, when we think of Jesus dying on the cross, uh, not incorrectly, may I say, not altogether incorrectly, do we say, well, when, when Jesus hung on the cross, uh, we might say, he thought of me. There are even songs about this. When Jesus died on the cross, I mean, if I had been the only sinner in the world, he would have died for me. And these kinds of expressions, I realize, are, are, are very familiar in popular Christianity. And again, not altogether wrong, because we read in Luke 16 of the good shepherd who goes in search for the one. I understand the the, the point of this. But I I want to press back tonight through this text about the focus of the cross. And I want us to see that when Jesus died on the cross, the, the preeminent, the main focus wasn't us. The main focus was God word. Now, this as well, as I'll say it here and probably not again, but sometimes some of us are in theological discussions about, uh, well, for whom did Jesus die? Some of you are familiar with those theological controversies. If, If you're not, leave it alone. But some of you discuss these things ad nauseum. For whom did Jesus die? And so on. Well, This text, and I think this focus, is part of my theological answer. That is, the cross of Jesus was preeminently God-word, not man-word. So instead of asking, for whom did Jesus die in terms of people, we might stay instead, in what direction was the atonement? Now, this may sound just ridiculously theological, but believe me, it has a significant point for your heart and for your faith. So, So bear with me. So I look then at Romans 3, 21 to 26, and you see in verse 21 this this big shift that Paul uses in other places, but now, he does it in Ephesians 2, does it here, but now, there's a turn, there's a big shift from bad news to good news, but now, he says, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So he's looking to the Old Testament, 
And he's saying there's something different going on here. There was a righteousness that people pursued in the Old Testament. And to read the Old Testament is to read the story of, of, of sacrifice and the blood of animals. And my goodness sakes, even in the New Testament, you read the book of Hebrews and you see the, the story of the Old Testament again portrayed. The blood of bulls and goats, as Paul will say, or Paul, the writer of Hebrews, will say in chapter 11, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So the Old Testament now, rivers of blood, animal sacrifices, but the testimony of Scripture is so loud and clear, animal sacrifices could never take away our sin. Something else was going on as the Bible unfolds. Animal sacrifices were inadequate to pay the debt for a couple of reasons. One, inadequate as to quality. That is, my sin is an offense against a holy God. There's not a, there's not a cow or a lamb that can pay for my offense. No, they're just animals. And well, the blood that was shed, as we'll see in a moment, covered those sins. The blood of animals could never take it away. Quality, quality, that is. And then another reason those animal sacrifices were inadequate is, let's just be honest, there aren't enough animals in the world. <laughs> There aren't enough animals in the world if I truly understand how much I sin, and you, how much you sin, multiplied by all the people on the face of this planet, if every time I said what I shouldn't say and did it on purpose, and every time my heart goes a direction it shouldn't, and I love it, and every time I sin in all kinds of other myriad of ways, an animal has to die? Do you know how many animals that is? There are no animals safe on the face of the planet. So the blood of animals would, would be inadequate as to quality and inadequate as to supply. Now, the Old Testament, as Paul says here, the Old Testament law and prophets bear witness to this different kind of righteousness that is to come. So then we see in verse 22, this righteousness comes from God. It's a gift from him through faith in Jesus Christ on this condition, it is for those who believe, for there is no distinction. Uh, whoever you are, wherever you stand this uh, today in terms of your feet on the ground here in the United States, if you're in another country, some are following us in other parts of the world, wherever you are, there's no distinction. Whatever language is your heart language, whatever ethnicity is yours, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, all of us have transgressed God's law. That's the point of verse 23. There's no distinction. It took the blood of Jesus to save me. It'll take the blood of Jesus to save you. And whatever our background individually, all of us, Paul says, have sinned. We've missed the mark. We've fallen short of the glory of God. This paragraph outlines God's solution then. The Old Testament bearing witness to this other plan now, verse 24, watch how the text unfolds. Not only have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, it says then that we can be justified. That word means to be declared righteous. It's like a legal term, like a, like a judge would speak from the bench and, and declare a sentence. So here, God is the judge. He, he is the one who declares righteous those who receive this gift. We're told by his grace, as a gift, through the redemption that is in 
Christ Jesus. See, the gospel is just being spelled out piece by piece. It's a gift from God. It's focused on Jesus Christ, his death on the cross for our sin. It's to be received as a gift. It is only by grace. All of these things that I hope flow from our lips repeatedly are just laid out here in the text. Now, verse 25, watch this carefully. As I have referred to, the Godward nature of the cross really comes into focus in verse 25. He's speaking of Jesus Christ at the end of verse 24, and then he says, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. And I mentioned as I read the text, propitiation is a, is a kind of a cool word that speaks of being satisfied. We heard that earlier from Pastor Tyler coming out of Isaiah 53, where the prophet says, God, speaking of God, he will see the travail of his soul, looking ahead to Jesus, and be satisfied. That's the idea, and it's so played out here. God put Jesus forth as a satisfaction by his blood. Now, the order is significant here. Some translations have gotten the order backwards. They've said uh, propitiation uh, by faith in his blood, and we're missing the point. The, the order in the grammar, as Paul wrote it, uh, is accurately reflected in the ESV and some newer translations. The propitiation... The satisfaction comes by his blood, Jesus' blood shed for us on the cross, to be received by faith. So then verse 25 uh, says, uh, well, leads to, sorry, verse, yeah, verse 25, this was to show God's righteousness, follow the logic here, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. He passed over. He passed over former sins? What, 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 what do we mean here, Paul? Like God ignored? Like God ignored things? What, what, in what sense did God pass over former sins? I want to suggest a couple of ways in which that is true. One, by God allowing our sin to be covered by the blood of animals, knowing that it's an inadequate sacrifice to, to atone for our sin, God was, in a sense, overlooking the disparity between the gravity of my sin and the, the animal sacrifice, a grand disparity, and God overlooked that. Further, those sacrifices were only given for certain types of sin. Uh, as I alluded to earlier, if there had been an animal sacrifice for every misspoken word, sinful word, and every wrong thought of the heart, we'd run out of animals for sure. Well, Sacrifices weren't required for all of those one by one. So there was a sense in which God, in his mercy, overlooked those past sins until Jesus would come, who alone would pay for all of the sins in the Old Testament, all the sins in human history before, all the, the, this, the sinfulness of our own world, the sin of all the world, so to speak, was on his shoulders. Now, I mentioned earlier the cross is preeminently God word. Sometimes we think specifically about the cross paying for each thing we did. I remember wrestling with that as a kid, thinking, you know, I finished telling a great lie and got away with it or something like that, and thinking, wow, so so Jesus took a like one of those lashes was for that lie. Maybe if I'd lied less, the beating would have been less. And and to think like that is to misunderstand the cross in the way in which I'm speaking. When Jesus died on the cross, he was 
satisfying the wrath of a holy God against sin. Bible speaks regularly of this, the cup that is poured out, the cup of God's wrath. Jesus was, I would argue, not so much paying for every single sin um, individually, but rather collectively by satisfying the wrath of God against our sin. You can wrestle with that. Um, but, but Jesus, when he died on the cross, rather than having it be like Jay sinned or Jay lied and, and, and there was a specific lash for this. No, no. When Jesus died on the cross, he was satisfying the Father's wrath. And I would suggest, I would argue from, the, from Scripture that when Jesus died on the cross, rather than him thinking mainly about Jay, he was thinking mainly about the Father's wrath to be satisfied. And therefore, as we heard earlier in the book of John, as Jesus died on the cross, there came that moment when he said, it is finished. That is, the wrath of God has been satisfied. We, we sing this in the song, In Christ Alone, when we sing that phrase, till on the cross as Jesus died, how's it go? The wrath of God was satisfied. So that's the idea behind what I'm saying. That song captures the idea of propitiation or satisfaction in a way that we often just sing right by and don't think about it. So I'm saying this. When Jesus died on the cross, he prayed for all of the sins of all time, Old Testament, current time, those sins yet to be committed in the future. So sometimes people think animal sacrifices paid for sin in the Old Testament. Not true. Not true. Covered. Covered sin until the perfect sacrifice, the perfect Lamb of God would come to take away the sins of the world. I'm saying the cross was decidedly God-centered, not man-centered. So less of an argument about for whom did Jesus die and more of an argument for Jesus died to satisfy the wrath of God against sin. I, I, that's the way I understand the text in its, in its loudest voice. One of the books that I reread in the last year, a book I think I read, oh goodness, back in high school or college, Tale of Two Cities, uh, Charles Dickens. Uh, I won't rehearse the whole thing for you, but there is a moment of redemption in that book. People love stories of redemption. Uh, they make great movies, they make great books. But in the Tale of Two Cities, of course, it's uh, set back in the days of the French Revolution and plays back and forth between London and Paris and families going back and forth and you find yourself captured by this family or this person who then turns out to be not so good or uh, all kinds of things happen. But there's a moment in the story when one person is in jail and he will be headed to, the, to, to, to death on the next day, but he's married to this young lady that he loves and who loves him. And another man who has loved this girl in vain and is friends with this gentleman knows that this girl really is better off with her husband. And he works out this fancy scheme to sneak into jail and then drug this other man who would never agree to this scheme. And then he, he takes his place. And the husband of this young lady is, is smuggled out of the prison and the man who took his place heads to the guillotine. Now, the one heading to the guillotine, of course, in the story is, is guilty of sin. He's not a guiltless one. But the, but the story 
so loudly screams of, of, of substitution. One taking the place of another. One dying in the place of another. And it all happens at the end of the story, leaving the reader saying, wow, did you see that? What an amazing act of kindness and generosity and, and love for this, this girl that he'll never have. What an amazing person this was. Many things are different about that story as you look at Jesus. Because in Jesus' death on the cross, you have the infinitely worthy one dying in the place of the infinitely unworthy ones. You have the just dying for the unjust, as Peter says, 1 Peter 3. You have the creator bearing the sin of the created, the perfect for the imperfect. Jesus, substitution, he died in my place. He satisfied the wrath of God on my behalf. When we think about rejoicing, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Part of that rejoicing is knowing that the righteous demands of sin would be covered. The satisfaction of the Father's wrath against our sin A writer I've read said this, we will never stand in awe of being loved by God until we reckon with the seriousness of our sin and the justice of his wrath against us. I've wanted us to think about this tonight. The death of Jesus on the cross fulfilled justice. Sin was atoned for. God's God's righteous wrath against sin fully satisfied. The death of Jesus on the cross was preeminently Godward that God may be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's verse 26. Now, I want to say this, and then we're going to sing a song and be done tonight. When you think about Jesus' death on the cross, I want you to think so much more uh, about this than that this was some strange thing in history. Uh, Far more than that. When Jesus died on the cross, he died in our place. He died in your place. He died in my place. He bore my sin before the wrath of a holy God. He covered my sin. And I I hope that tonight, whoever you are, wherever you are on this planet, I hope that you know Christ is your Savior. I hope this Good Friday evening, it's more than just a, a reflection of theology from an old book. I hope there's a resonance in your heart that said, yes, Jesus died for me. I'm trusting him as my savior from sin. I understand and I believe the gospel. And tonight, may I just say to you, if you've never trusted Christ as your savior, would you do that tonight? Would you, would you agree before God that you've done wrong, that you're a sinner in need of a savior? Believe, would you do that? Would you believe tonight that Jesus died on the cross for your sin? And would you trust him as your savior? Turn to him, say, oh God, I've done wrong, I know it. Tonight, I believe Jesus died on the cross for me. I want to be part of the family of God. I want to pray for us, and we'll, we'll close tonight with the song. Father, thank you so much for your word. We find such delight in reading your plan of salvation. I thank you for this Good Friday evening, and we remember this moment years and years ago when the Son of God hung there on that cross, the wrath of God fully upon his shoulders. In that moment, Jesus paid it all. For this, we are so thankful. I pray that in these moments tonight and up until Sunday that we would contemplate the significance of sin, 
all that Jesus endured for each of us. Thank you, Father, for your word tonight. Help us to see it. In Jesus' great name, amen.